Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Arroya Office Hours Live. A couple of reminders before we get started. This is your chance to hear from the experts, get answers in real time about data you're seeing with your grow, and share cultivation tips and tricks with other growers in this exciting industry. Thanks, everybody, in advance for not using this time for things like policy grievances, industry grievances, or asking about Arroya pricing, although definitely book a demo with us so we can talk more about that. My name is Keisha. I'll be your moderator today. Feel free to type your questions in the chat and and if your question is selected, we'll have you unmute yourself and go ahead and ask away. Um, anybody who asks their questions live for the first time today, we're going to get an Arroyo hat. That's going to be limited to U.S. residents only, please. One hat per household. And then we're going to be raffling off one of our limited edition t-shirts, just like the one I'm wearing right now. Uh, drop your email address in the chat for your chance to win. We got Seth in the studio. Jason is on via satellite. How are you guys doing today? Pretty good, Keisha. Good. Yeah. yeah. Good to see you. Yeah. It's a awesome. beautiful day outside. Can't, can't keep stressing out how thankful yeah. we are for summer here in the Northwest. It thought it wasn't going to happen there. It feels good. I'm in California. California, it's been warm. My little <laughs> can of babies are ready to be repotted. So those are, that's my project for the weekend. Um, but yeah, excited to be here. Fresh off a West Coast tour. We visited a bunch of clients last week. So everybody look forward to some case studies coming soon. Um, but we are here to answer grower's question right now in real, real time. So Seth and Jason, you ready for the first one from Instagram? Let's get it started. Excellent. Okay. Smokers LA posted, I was told electrical conductivity is more important to steering than water content. Can you elaborate on that? So, I mean, they are related. When we talk about using electrical conductivity for crop steering, we're usually referencing um, osmotic potential or osmotic pressure differential between the root zone and the plants. And depending on, on how much that differential is, we can definitely steer using EC. Yeah, so when we talk about crop steering, you know, selectively applying certain stresses to the plant, whether we're, you know, limiting the amount of... Uh, irrigation events it gets to a day so as not to push it harder or, uh, you know, raising EC, both of those actions kind of inhibit the plant's ability to grow more. So as it, the water has higher salinity, higher EC, it's more difficult for the plant to pull water and nutrients up. So that is certainly a component to crop steering. But um, if we're talking about steering only with EC, that's kind of venturing more into the realm of like deep water culture, where that's the only control you have there. So it's, you know, it's, um, it's definitely part of the equation. It's highly useful, but it is a singular variable when we look at, you know, pushing the plant in multiple ways when we're looking at crop steering the way we do at Arroyo. And to kind of break down the substrate differences, one of the reasons that modulating your EC is nice for crop steering, especially in rock wool and cocoa, we're looking at the matrix potential in some of these hybrid hydroponic substrates. At rock wool, the Matrix potential is a very linear slope, and we can hit extraordinarily low water contents before the plant actually feels um, a water stress. And so by modulating that EC, we don't have to necessarily jeopardize the substrate quality and or um, get so low that, that we are running out quickly overnight per se. Um, you know, in something like traditional soils, uh, maybe for outdoor, you're, you're going to have less opportunity to steer with EC 
and you're going to be using more of, um, you know, say matrix potential. Maybe you're using a tensiometer in the soil to evaluate that uh, soil moisture potential. Yeah, and one thing to highlight, I think, especially Jason, is in these, uh, you know, either soilless mediums or rock wool, which again is another totally soilless medium. Um, what we're looking at because of that matrix potential not causing the plant to say wilt at any particular point within the range we operate. What we're looking about is spacing out those cellular respiration events so that we control plant growth without actually pushing it into what is truly a drought stress. We're not pushing that plant to the point, hopefully, where it has to change anything physiologically to still be able to uptake water. We're limiting how much it's allowed to grow by slowing down the number of irrigation events, to put it in the simplest terms. If anyone's interested in what matrix potential is, We've got, I think, two or three other episodes where we've broken down explanation uh, of those differences. I know Galen did um, a slideshow on it as well. So go ahead and check out those resources on our Arroyo YouTube or also visit um, meter.com, search matrix potential, and there should be a lot of resources about the scientific aspects of matrix potential. Absolutely. And even... Uh... A lot of the literature you might find out there relate more to soil growing, especially in field conditions. That's still relatable to what we're doing here and how uh, matrix potential affects the plants. So great. There's a lot of considerations um, with all of the, these different crop steering techniques. Thank you for that overview. So Eric is on with us today and he's got a question. Eric, can you unmute yourself or would you like me to go ahead and ask it? Um, no, I can ask. Excellent. Go for it. So guys, I, recently flipping the flower and um, kind of having a debate between how high I want to set my lights and how much I want to optimize the par, right? So obviously I could set my lights pretty high and try to maximize for stretch or, um, but then I want to also like kind of come to the right par as well. And, uh, you know, if, if I move my lights all the way up, it's kind of hard to get that par I desire. So I kind of want to see if you guys have any data like supporting optimizing one versus the other and uh, one to do so that makes sense yeah absolutely mm -hmm. and i i would start off with looking up the manufacturer specifications on that light it'll give you different par levels and footprint at different heights and uh, if if you had your facility designed with a lighting engineer involved they should already have this data telling you about what pars to expect at different distances and so based on your light spacing, we want to try and get as even a par across the canopy as possible. So that's where I would start. Um, the next up would be, you know, thinking about light source type. Obviously, HPSs are going to be burning off humidity a lot more than HPS, or excuse me, than LED, and they're going to create quite a bit of heat. So that's why a lot of these, you know, two or three tiered systems that don't have a ton of headroom above their canopy are usually going to be using LEDs simply to try and eliminate any of that extra heat, any of that modification to the canopy environment. Yeah, we want to look at what your PPFD is at the actual canopy height and start tuning from there. Um, you know, more basically you want in this situation, a higher PPFD, unless you want to encourage stretch, but typically we don't want to spend our time growing more lumber. We want to grow more buds. So we want to maximize PPFD in the zone that we want it. And like Jason said, if you've got, you know, the right literature, it's pretty easy. Um, if you don't, a good thing to do is to get, you know, something like the Apogee SQ521 and go start mapping your room out and saying, okay, we've got these hot spots in light. We've got these dim spots. Maybe our next thing, rather than worry about height as much, is 
reorganizing our lights so we have more even coverage and really optimizing even PPFD across the room because we want, you know, as much of our canopy to have a consistent and even level of light. Um, and also just, again, by the way, usually in an indoor setting, less lumber, more flower. That's our goal. So we want to minimize that stretch. That's a big part of why we're pushing, you know, generative steering techniques during stretch. Eric, did that answer your question? Um, yeah, actually, uh, I guess uh, I I had always been under the impression I did want to stretch a little bit into flower, but you know, it sounds like data wise, uh, you guys are seeing more success with just going straight for par. Usually, we're trying to get done with most of our intended stretching during veg, um, and it's going to be somewhat genetic based as well. If you have a really stretchy plant, then we're going to hit, hit generative pretty hard and early when we get into flower. If you have something that's much more stubby, shrubby, and short, um, you know, you might get away with uh, just using more vegetative irrigation scheduling to get that stretch that you're looking for rather than light modification. Yeah, it is, it is highly strain dependent. Um, most strains are going to lean towards uh, needing to control that stretch, especially in a height limited situation. But one thing I always want to think about is for every uh, micromole light we put in at any given time, we want to get a certain amount of plant growth out of it. And we will get a certain amount of plant growth out of it, provided our nutrients, CO2, and water are all there. What we want to do is focus all of that into flower production. Anytime we have stretch, especially after, say, that first three to four weeks, depending on the strain, we're kind of wasting micromoles if we're not turning that into nugs, basically. so. We really want to focus on that higher PPFD and then giving the plant what it needs, which is potentially some higher EC, uh, CO2 supplementation, everything it might need to get in there. Great. Eric, you feeling good about that? Anything else? Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for your question. That was a good one. And just a reminder to everybody who's on with us, if you have any questions, type it in the chat because we want to. Let's talk about it. Okay, so I'll move on to our next question from Instagram. This came from BMG, BMG389. They asked, what does the Arroyo team like using for integrated pest management? Uh, we like using Arroyo to document integrated pest management. <laughs> um, I like looking at what you're allowed to use, what you can use, and what's effective. We don't, we're pretty agnostic when it comes to that because there's so many different pests and when we look at different regions and pest pressures and then local ordinances, everything changes. So what I like to do as far as IPM goes is, uh, you know, we've got our regular application program and say veg, maybe even our clone room. What we're going to do is, you know, try to develop a regular schedule where we're mixing up our mode of action on our pesticides. So basically, if we've got one that's, you know, citric acid based, we might want to go more towards a pyrethrin or some other option, depending on what options we have on our table. So we're not developing a resistant population of pests in there. You know, we, we, we don't want the classic, hey, we've treated it with, uh, you know, name a product, only that product for years. Well, now the bugs we have won't, they don't die when we apply that product. So that's the biggest thing we want to avoid. And then you know, um, being realistic about, okay, maybe sometimes I, uh, got to kill all my moms, got to start over and fully clean out the facility because when we get to flower, 
there's generally a hard top end on when we want to spray, whether it's because of, uh, you know, pesticide contamination or let's say we have the safest spray in the world that people can smoke later somehow or the half-life means it's gone in a day. Week seven, we're still going to mold out nugs if we go in there and spray. So what we want to do is focused on, you know, making sure our prop and veg are as clean as possible, potentially going with some sort of knockdown spray. There's a lot of options when you go into flower just to clean out that room. And then looking into some of your biological solutions, because after a few weeks in, we can't spray. So we want to pad that with some beneficial insects that can go and help, you know, at least maintain those pest populations at a low enough level where they're not going to impact our yield. Yeah. And I mean, so there's definitely two approaches to applying that, just like those regular schedules Seth's talking about. Get those in your array uh, recipe in your grow cycle template, just to give yourself a reminder when you should be doing them on the regular. And sometimes you'd be modifying that depending on strain. So build a couple recipes out on the timeline that works best for that type of plant or what they're more susceptible to. So that would be the proactive um, pest management applications. And then there's also the reactive uh, pest management applications. And that's where you'll be going in and actively doing some spotting. So go check out what types of, of bugs are thriving in there that you need to get rid of. Um, and, and that's probably not even a, a bad, bad thing to consult experienced pesticide um, applicators in your area. Uh, if you know of, of someone that's really good with biologicals, um, check them out. They can probably give you some really good advice on which um, predatory bugs are most effective for your concerns. Absolutely. And, you know, something to remember, too, with the different regional laws as far as pesticides go, it's always good to consult someone who is, you know, say a certified applicator because they can help you navigate what kind of uh, regulations you have to follow. Um, Anything like, you know, warning signs, recommended entry intervals, they can really help you navigate that. And, you know, again, we're we're pretty agnostic. This is a that's a really big subject (laughs) when we get into IPM. But really, at the end of the day, the number one thing you need to worry about as a grower is your economic injury threshold. You know, I always like to use fungus gnats as, as an example. If I spend $1,000 to control fungus gnats on this little run and they didn't reduce my yield by two pounds if I did nothing, then that was wasted money. So focus your efforts on places where they actually matter and do a, a real risk evaluation on any action you take. Because if you spend money on a pesticide that's not going to work or say you've used it and it doesn't work, you're, you're wasting money. So another good thing to do that I like to do is, you know, day one, day two, after a spray application, go throw some new sticky cards out there and see if you actually have a reduction in the number of bugs you're catching per square inch per day. Because if you were intending to, you know, get rid of something that you're catching on there, throw out a new one. If you've got the same rate of sticking to the trap for two days afterwards, well, your, your spray didn't really do much if it was supposed to have, you know, efficacy within 12 hours. Another thing that um, a licensed professional in, in this zone will help you do is reduce the chance that you're killing any of your beneficials. So a lot of those pesticides are going to be reducing the beneficial population. So make sure you're documenting what's going into the room, both biological and chemical, and make sure that you're not wasting your money on biological Uh, if you're killing them with a a chemical application. Oh, absolutely. And then depending on your location, you know, right back to the EIT, you're going to have to accept at certain times, like around here where we live is strong uh, wheat and barley and pea and garbanzo bean country. Well, when they go spray our fields for aphids, 
guess what's trying to come into your facility suddenly because you're a little island of non-poisonous green <laughs> in a sea of spray that those bugs are running from. So depending on where you're at, certain times a year, you can start to develop a strategy and a plan like, okay, every fall or every year, mid-July, we got the aphids coming in. Every fall when it gets cold, they try to come in and maybe they're, you know, green peach aphids rather than cannabis aphids. But that again is where, you know, a local expert is going to really help you be able to dial that in. And feel free to reach out, especially on the IPM, to people that are not just in the cannabis industry. You know, someone that also works in any kind of fruit production you have locally is probably going to be your best friend when it comes to IPM. Ooh, so much good information in that answer. Thank you guys so much for that. Okay, so going back to Instagram, we got a few questions uh, related to veg versus gen steering. Um, this one came from Cody McLaren, 720. They posted, explain what times you should be in vegetative or generative steering through the life cycle. That's kind of a, that's a big question. Um, but I was thinking maybe you guys could kind of give an overview of veg versus gen. I think we've talked about it before, but maybe that's a good place for us to, to take this chat. Um, let's, yeah, let's just check out some of the previous office hours. I know there's probably a total of three or four hours of us chatting about, <laughs> um, strain differences, um, our goals when we are crop steering, when we do that for the desired morphological result of the plant. So check out the office hours. Um, that's, that's my advice. Yeah. I mean, we, we've definitely covered that quite a bit. Just basically, um, you know, you're going to apply the technique you want to in veg, depending on what strain you have to achieve the desired size and the desired time that you want. We're going to in stretch again, it's strain dependent, how long we're going to stay in generative. Typically in flower, we're going to go generative to bulking back to generative to ripen. But that switch is so totally strain dependent that even giving you saying like three weeks at the beginning, like, eh, it works for half the strains you might grow. We, we really want to focus on the, the idea that these techniques are a tool in your toolbox, not necessarily a schedule, just that's universal to follow. Yeah, it's not a it's not a specific menu. It's 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 an experience. Um, Jay Rowe had a question um, that I thought might work for this particular chat here. Are there any benefits to running generative steering in veg? Go for it, Seth. <laughs> I was going to say absolutely. You know, when we've got a um, a strain that we're trying to slow down that stretch. We're going to run generative in veg. And the, the other side effect of that is that's going to give us more nodes, shorter internodes, and hopefully, potentially, on, depending on the strain, more side branching early on. So that's just going to allow us to develop more flower sites and keep our height down and try to, you know, basically get ahead of that trend before we even flip and go into stretch. Excellent. Um, and then the chemical grower submitted this question. They wanted to know what would be a good defoliate strategy in veg and flower. Guys, thoughts on that? I guess I'll go ahead here. Um, you know, basically a, a big thing about growing this is once we flip to 12-12, we've taken an indeterminate growth pattern and turned it to determinate. So when we're under 18-6, that plant's going to just keep growing. It's never going to flower. We go to 12-12 and kick it off into flowering. We've got X amount of days on any given strain that it's going to ripen. So in my mind, the earlier I can do it is when I want to take off anything that I'm not going to harvest. 
So I always advocate for an early cleanup, whether that's day one or even up to into the first week. And then we're going to clean it up again at the end of stretch. And then maybe depending on how well your room can regulate VPD, might do another cleanup before harvest, but we want to manage, you know, infection risk in the plant. And then also, you know, our labor inputs, the more you have to touch the plant, the more money you're spending to produce it. So at, at the end of the day, if I want the most beautiful looking plant possible, that's just all dug and no leaves and looks like it belonged in high times. Um, great. I might put a lot of effort into that plant, really trying to increase that on the plant appeal. But at the end of the day, if I'm breaking down all this bulk product into bags, into jars, each individual cola is not what I'm looking at because that's four jars of weed. So um, what we want to look at is balancing how much we need to put in in order to ensure that we're growing mostly quality product. And then how often we want to touch the plant and then also realize, you know, every time we do one of these defoliations or prunings, it's slowing down plant growth. You know, if we've got 56 days, we're trying to finish this plant. Each day is almost 2% of that plant's life cycle. If we stall it out for two days, that's, that's a significantly longer growth cycle suddenly, you know, and then over the years that adds up. So really minimal touch. And, uh, you know, that, that also is totally dependent on what you do. We're, we're in a whole new world now where some people want to grow 20 to 30% smalls B grade because they have a pre-rolled market that they have to support. You know, they've, they've already got these contracts with that expectation and they don't want to dip into their more profitable product in order just to, in, in order to just fulfill these pre-roll contracts, for instance, or, you know, lower priced brand. Everyone wants the best of the best, but we also got to meet market demand. We've got to we've got to make sure our business model follows through because if there was only sixty dollar an eighth top shelf quality bud everywhere, well, a lot of growers would be out of business right now too. And just as a general rule of thumb for this type of stuff is the least amount of deleafing that you can do to manage your light penetration in the canopy and your canopy environment. So as we see that that canopy thicken up obviously our light penetration is going to go down there's a good chance we'll have more larger fee type buds lower lower in the stalks and stems and then it's also going to have a much higher humidity in the canopy due to increased transpiration the surface area um, of those plant leaves so that, that's kind of my jewel, rule of thumb without uh, without addressing specifically the quality that you're shooting for um, try and try and balance your your labor with your goals yeah. And then, you know, if we're looking at, uh, it's again, that's always going to be strain specific. <laughs> I've definitely grown a few strains where minimal cleanup, they still had great nugs down low density wise. And, you know, part of that's just due to different hormonal concentrations and how light affects that, that are strain specific. Uh, we can get more into that a little later as far as oxygen and light degradation goes. But, um, again, it is entirely strain specific. I've totally had strains where I did not have to clean them up as nearly as much as others. I'll use wedding cake as an example. Grown some wedding cake right next to like a chem cookies where the chem cookies just, if you didn't deleaf the lower part, it's almost, I don't want to say it's all trash, but everything below about a foot deep in the canopy is B or lower grade. Whereas that wedding cake, if I gave it the exact same treatment as I gave the chem cookies, everything from the bottom of my canopy to the top was A grade. And, you know, that was just a genetic difference in the plants and how it responded to its light. Also, a little looser canopy on the fan leaves. 
you know, when you look at those two plants side by side, you can kind of go, okay, I see how this one achieves better light penetration just because of how it's shaped and how, you know, I mean, just narrow leaf, narrow leaflets versus wide leaflets will make a big difference in that. So we kind of just want to always, you know, continue with our crop registration and be able to look back and see how did this strain respond and what kind of tools do we need to apply to it throughout this harvest cycle to maximize it. Seth, that's actually a perfect segue into a question that James one Scorpio sent. Um, they wrote six inch Hugo finish, four foot finishing height. What's your recommended veg height pre 1212? Well, we don't know the strain and we don't know what the desired outcome is, but what you just summarized are some of the considerations that James one Scorpio needs to be thinking about. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. In his specific case, small. I know there's plenty of growers out there that are flipping in the 10 to 14 inch range and the Hugo's just trying to keep it under control. So that's, that is also maybe a situation where you want to consider changing up your media due to the fact that, you know, it might be harder for you to keep those plants small in that smaller six by six by six. So your, your, your idea of keeping them smaller, you might not be able to flip them as big as you want to get the structure you want. And then flip side, when you're trying to keep up with your irrigation and that small media, you're just going to push that plant to grow more and more and more and more. So it's definitely, a, it's a holistic approach and it all revolves around your observations, taking notes and quantifying everything you can about that plant's growth habit. We see lots of different plant sizes simply because of legal constraints. Let's take Michigan, for example, where they're growing licenses based on plant number. Um, physical constraints, are we multi-tier where we don't have the height to grow five-foot plants, um, genetic responses, uh, amount of labor input depending on uh, plant count, all that type of stuff is playing into role on the ideal plant size for you. Growers have a lot to think about. Um, okay, I'm going to get to our next question, but just a reminder for our live in-person attendees, we're here for you. Also, so post your questions in the chat if you have any. Bilbo Baggins 420 posted quite a few questions, but I'm going to just start with this first one here. He wants to know, have you experienced inconsistent fluid delivery from drip emitters, and what's a correction without change out? I'll just add to that. Is there a way for, how can Arroyo help with something like that? Yeah, so we definitely do see inconsistencies in, in drip emitters. Um, the first easiest one to avoid uh, actually, the first two easiest to avoid would be make sure you're getting a high-quality emitter. Um, some of the lower-quality emitters, you know, you go to Home Depot and pick up something that's for your your home plants. It's not gonna it's not gonna like the nutrient concentrations that we run in cannabis, for example. The other easy one to avoid is anything that's uh, organic or, or mixed in a talc powder. Um, definitely don't put that in your systems. If that is in your systems, there's not a lot of great ways sure you can run some hypercorous acids or, or some um, some chemicals to help break down organic buildup in your lines which is probably a good process to do anyways but if you're using something like a talc your your best mitigation is to to replace the system most of the time irrigation drippers are fairly inexpensive part as far as what they're going to cost you in plant consistency versus uh, the amount of loss yeah, unfortunately, when we talk about, you know, pressure compensating irrigation, a lot of these systems were designed, uh, well, and part of the limitation is the materials going into it, but they weren't designed to be pushing these high levels of salinity and TDS every day. 
you know, when we look in vegetable production, grape production, a lot of the traditional uses of uh, this highly efficient irrigation system, they're fertigating much less than we are in a hydroponic situation. So really it's better to start planning in, you know, a third or a fifth, the the cost of an emitter for each plant you grow into your business model, rather than being surprised every year, year and a half when you need that full change out. Because as Jason said, you know, especially if you've been putting anything organic in it, um, you can sanitize it. It's very difficult. But if we just replace, say, the lines on the tables and the emitters and upstream, we still have bacterial inoculation that's going to come right back in. So, you know, the biggest thing is clean nutrients, uh, you know, look at what you, the nutrients you want to do, do with your water supply. Local water quality can vary. You know, you might actually have to start filtering your water just because, hey, there's a factor in there that causes fallout with your nutrient program. Okay, you're going to want to deal with that. And then, like I said, just just accept it. Unfortunately, right now, the state of pressure compensating drip systems, uh, they don't last very long in the cannabis cultivation world. And hopefully that changes soon. But we are in a time where all this technology is catching up. And I think that's what we've all got to realize. There's there's limitations there and it's going to get better. But, you know, the world of technology, especially when we're talking something like irrigation, only moves so fast. You know, these parts sell for a quarter a piece. We've, we've got to sell a lot of them to develop a new, better one. And the price might double if you want something that, you know, has certain features that we all want. But if the price doubles or triples or quadruples, suddenly we're right back to, okay, is this affordable? And if you hit all those check marks, you know, the next best thing that you can do is have multiple high quality inline filters and clean them out regularly. So most of the time I like to be at least 120 mesh higher in in those filters. And that's just going to be the, the preventative steps to, to protect your investment in those drippers. Yeah. Also clean those filters regularly. Have clear outs on your lines so you can flush them out regularly. Um, you know, maintenance is also a huge part of it. I, I would say strongly don't don't go a full two to three months without flushing out your lines, without cleaning it even if it's in the same run, like it's okay to run, you know, say a Sirtol solution, leave your leaf valves open, push some water through there and clean out the lines. Don't just don't let it get too bad. You know, cleanliness is really the key to operation in a lot of these systems. And with, with a lot of um, cleansing type of products, uh, like a hypercoarse acid, you can actually run at really low concentrations with the feed of your um, nutrients. Mm-hmm. One of the benefits of running a, a small concentration of hypochlorous acid, it does help increase your dissolved oxygen to that red zone. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. You know, just look at, look at ways to stay as clean as possible and develop SOPs that continue to keep your equipment clean. You know, and sometimes that, that comes about in ways that are kind of surprising. You know, you might have heard like, oh, I don't think I need to change my filters or clean them every other day or every day. Well, you know, maybe someone two states away from you with different water quality doesn't have to, but you might. So developing those best practices and even sometimes if it seems like you're going time-wise twice as long out of the way to ensure that stuff's good, you're always going to have way less time investment on making sure things operate correctly than fixing problems after it breaks. That was great. Thank you guys so much. All right. Turk Total Farms is on with us today. You want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Hey guys, how's it going? Hey, uh, Good to see you. 
Yeah. <laughs> I um F took heeded the advice last week, you know, I ra- raised my EC a little bit. I'm up to the three three now. Uh got my light levels up just under a thousand. I was always under I've only been monitoring the substrate for a, a few runs now. And mm-hmm. so I was always under the impression that the plants didn't drink that much when the lights were actually out. And so I don't have access to graphing, but what I do do is I'm in there every hour on the hour. So I basically have my own graphs, you know, <clears throat> and I, I'm seeing a 15% dry back, not in the P3, just from the time right before lights go out, just till lights come on or right till the beginning of my next P1, like mm-hmm. two hours before, you know? So my, you think I'm starting transpiration much is that happening in the two hours of the lights on or am I really getting 15% overnight like that? It could be. So when we look at how water leaves the substrate, there's really only three factors that come, three factors that come into play. Uh, that would be runoff. That's a pretty easy one to know if it's happening or not. Then the other two are evaporation and transpiration. Evaporation's the water leaving the substrate to the environment through the surface area of that um, substrate. And then obviously transpiration is water uptake into the plant that's being processed by photosynthesis and leaving the surfaces of the plant. So overnight, we're looking at a much, much lower uh, evaporation rate. Uh, The lights typically in in a room are going to contribute to a lot of evaporation. And then a much lower transpiration rate. We are currently doing some studies using small conductance to try and get an idea of what our transpiration rates do look like overnight. I don't necessarily have some great references on how much less transpiration we're looking at cannabis at night than we are in the daytime, uh, but it but there is still water leaving through the plant. Yeah, a good way to think about it is you know uh, if you're doing a good job in your environmental maintenance and controlling it, you're going to be able to maintain your daytime VPD when your lights kick off, and when that happens, we've got a certain pressure deficit in the air that's pulling water up through the plant the plant is still going to pull that water through because of the physical condition of the air. If we're doing everything correctly, what's not going to happen is, you know, the plant's not going to respirate. It's not going to necessarily take advantage of that water in the same way it would in the daytime. But that 10 to 15% overnight dryback is a really good indicator that your humidity is not just skyrocketing when your lights go off. And, and it might jump up a little bit right away until the rest of your system catches up. But if you had said the opposite, like, hey, I only get a 2% dryback after lights go off, I'd be like, okay, buddy, we need to get potentially some AC, yeah. some massive dehumidification in that room. Yeah, no, the, the room's d- dialed in. Yeah, right and that's, that's what we want to see, is we want to see that water continuing to flow through the plant. Because the other thing is, you know, if we raise that humidity, uh, the plant's going to try to open its stomata, going to try to continue that transpiration just because it has all this water. Um, if we lower that VPD to the point where that can't continue, that's especially later in flower when we're going to run into mold problems because the room gets humid. We get a very humid condition inside the actual bud at that point because nothing's moving around. And uh, in the daytime, we just can't dry it back out. Yeah. So you're seeing so good that, things. <laughs> no, go ahead. It's tough over the Zoom. So <laughs> go ahead. What were you saying? Oh, no. Was, you go ahead, dude. I'm saying you're seeing okay. good things. That's uh, a, you said a good thing. I'm really happy about it. Not that you don't yeah. ever, but <laughs> no, that's, that's a good sign. So I, uh, I, I lost a little bit of my total water content in my slabs, like 63 is max max. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hitting, um, in the morning I'll be, I've seen as low as 38, which is creeping lower than I want it. Mm-hmm. And so 
I'm hitting right now with six over two hours, two lights on plus two hours, six feeds every 20 minutes for a total of 36% of what would be total water. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Of So that will give me back to my max at 63 plus about 12% runoff, which is what I'm seeing in my runoff trays. Cause I get a, mm-hmm. I got a tray each zone. And so then I'm, when I'm down there every hour on the hour, I see it what appears to be about a 1.4% drinking rate. Like once they're at max capacity around mm-hmm. one, around 1 PM, then once they start drinking, it seems to be at 1.4%. So I'll hit them with a P2 shot at five, which means by five, they drank about 5%. Now at P2, I'll hit them with a 6%, which they'll trickle a little. There won't be much more in the trays. Mm-hmm. And then, and so, That seems like it's managed correctly to me, right? Everything looks great. I don't know. So then I'm worried about later on, like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm worried about when I'm trying to go back vegetative in in another couple weeks here. Mm -hmm. Like, "Mm, the plants aren't that big. I don't feel like I should be having to have really late P2s, you know? But I'm getting that 15% overnight that's really. Yeah, I mean, your values right now seem okay. Like, like that's right where you want to be. If you're hitting 38, that's not a huge concern. Um, once we get, you know, once you go further away from, you know, your generative stretch and get into bulking, you're depending on how often you can get out there and take those readings. Ideally, you're going to narrow it down to one to 3% shots in the afternoon and carry those all the way out until two hours before lights off. And then if you're hitting an over drying situation and bulking, you're just going to push those P2s out to more like continue until an hour before lights off. So we don't have so, quite as much dry bag. So you think I'm better? I'm better off starting the P2s sooner, having more of them smaller than waiting so longer. When we're when we're in generative growth, if we do have to add a P2 in the afternoon, just because if we don't, it's going to overdry, right? Yeah, yeah. You want to do that as late as possible, usually about two hours before lights off. Okay, run it. So even late, I was waiting four hours, but you say wait even longer mm-hmm. and just get it up to what I needed to to carry it through the night. So that I don't, I'm not over in the morning. Right. Unless you're in a high EC situation where you want that second runoff event to help modulate your EC. Yeah. That's another opportunity to do that. It's an half on saturation now. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's where you're going to decide whether you need runoff in that, that last P2 or not is whether your EC is starting to go up, 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 or if it's just riding, keep doing what you're doing. Cool. Yeah. No, um, no, another option that you have, I mean, it sounds like you are running pretty large plants if you're doing three plants per slab. A couple other options, you would be able to run two plants per slab, um, and that would give you slightly more water shop content capacity in your substrate um, per plant, and or you could get a slightly different size slab. I know Grodion offers quite a few slabs. Yeah, there's only there's some the of them. Are, yeah, only some of them are really popular and common to get, but there are other options. Um, I mean, I don't feel like they're that big. They'll finish around five and a half feet, you know? Okay. Yeah, it's not terribly huge. Depending yeah, yeah. on the strain, though, that might be a, a beast of a plant for having three on there. It's tough to say that that picture is, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's Oreos right now, so it's, okay. yeah, we'll see. First time I've run it, too, so I, I'm not familiar with the strain either. I mean, I couldn't tell you. Yep, and that's that's part of this, too. You know, it's Arroy provides you with the tools to map out, you know, that strain, you know, your develop the recipe you need for that strain and everything that goes into it. So even if you've got it, like it'll take you a few runs to nail it, you know? 
you put it they into are, your standard program to figure out where you got to tweak it. Unbelievable, though. I'm, I'm stoked. I've learned so much from you guys, man. Like I said earlier, it was like that last piece of my puzzle, man. You guys put it together for me. So I'm, thank you again. So Perfect. Well, thanks for tuning in, man. We like your questions. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing your experience. That's the thing. Like just hearing from other growers, like we all learn from each other. So Turtle, Turtle mm-hmm. thank you so much for that. Okay, so I'm going to go back to some Instagram questions, but for our folks who are still on with us, it's not too late to ask your questions live. All right, another one from Bilbo Baggins. I thought this was really interesting. I've never heard of this before. They're asking pith autolysis, which is, I had to look it up, a condition in which I can't pronounce this word, herbaceous plants have a hollow stem. Is this a common occurrence? And they want to know what the remedy is for it. Have you guys heard of that? Any experience with that? Yeah, it's, it, as we say, very, very strain dependent. This is probably one of the most strain dependent characteristics that we reference. And uh, usually we don't get too concerned about it uh, unless your stems are weak. So if, you know, if you're seeing hollow and weak stems, definitely want to modify your nutrients, um, either total or composition or total availability. And then check out your environment. Uh, if they're hollow and weak, there's there's definitely something that uh, could be improved for the health of that plant. Yeah, you know, one thing to remember is like the pith in that plant by the time we reach maturity is only providing a little bit of structural support. All of your plant, mo- you know, all of your water mobility in the plant happens on the outer, just just the outer few millimeters of the plant stem. So when we're looking at you know stem autolysis, there pith autolysis. It's a, it seems to be from everything I've read and seen, even in other dicot plants, um, highly genetic. If we were looking at, you know, basically a different breeding program where we had the ability to go put out 10,000 plants and make our selection, we would have thrown the hollow stem one away. That, that might've been one of the 10 that we got at 10,000 that we're narrowing down, but, um, it's not generally directly caused, or if it is directly caused by a technique. It's a genetic trait that is triggered by that technique. And generally speaking, it, it better really put out some weight or be something special if you want to keep it in your system. And it's happening to almost every plant. On the flip side, um, I've seen plants that yield just fine with a hollow stem. And as Jason was saying, the biggest thing is, you know, the uh, people growing them did a little bit of silicate supplementation early on to try to make sure they had some beefy stems. And then uh, they, they just trellised at the right time, let the plant grow into it and minimize the amount of time they're out there potentially knocking over branches. You know, that's, that's another thing we're talking about defoliation techniques, um, especially late ones. Consider your harm versus what you're doing. If you knock over half the bench trying to get to those inner fan leaves, well, you might've just done more damage than leaving those on to fall off on their own would do. That's great. Thank you. Um, you, you referred to it, Seth, as dicot. Yeah. So we have monocot and dicot plants and that just refers to like how many cotyledons they have when the seed sprouts. Thank you. That was really, that's uh, that, a tough word. So dicot, I, I'm just going to call it dicot. Thank you yeah. for that. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um, we also have, here's another question from um, Bill Bobbins. He has some really, really good ones. He wants to know, have you seen rock wool used in 18.6 vegetative steering potted on top of higher CEC media for 12.12? Does that question make sense to you guys? Yeah, 
Um, and we've talked a little bit about this of one of the challenges of using uh, like four by four Rockwell starters and then going on to say a one or two gallon cocoa is simply the, the different CEC in that substrate. And I think that's what, uh, what he's referring to here. Um, so yes, I guess is the answer. We've seen it. It, it is a challenge. There are a few ways to, to deal to deal with it. Maybe Seth, if you want to jump into those. Yeah, you know, when we if we're talking about cocoa specifically, it's not that big of a deal. And if we want to look at like you know, uh, the flower industry, cut flower industry, or uh, berry industry, by and far, there's a lot of people you know propagating in rock wool and going to a higher CEE medium, aka soil. Uh, that that totally exists in our application. What we really want to consider is the difference in matrix potential between our rock wool and whatever media we're putting that on top of. And then, you know, the easiest way to do that is look at what kind of moisture content we can reach or volumetric water content. So if my rock wool reaches 65, 70%, my cocoa only gets up to 45 or 50. I'm going to be at a slight risk of inducing stem rot or root rot just because that co that rock wool is going to wick water out of the cocoa and hold it in a place where the plant's actually not going to uptake it. So that's what we want to look out for. It's really more about like, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to shorten my veg by going to a four by four by four rock wool cube and drop it onto cocoa, I want to go look at what kind of cocoa I'm using, make sure that my water contents are going to match up as best as they can. And then, you know, try to just try to match it up. And then on the other side too, depending on your situation, you might end up going with a lower density rock wool. If you're in, you know, some cocoa, you like running between 45 and 55. You might be looking at vegging in a par grow and watering a little more often, just so you can be closer to that and avoid those root rot issues. Um, ideally though, if that's what you're looking at, you know, if you're stuck on cocoa and you want to go to shorten your veg, there's also a 0.3 gallon cocoa pots, you know, four by four by four, roughly that are a great option and they have perforated bottoms. You don't have to do anything other than set them on top of your second cocoa pot, just like you would with that rock wool cube. So, so in short, it's, it's possible, it's doable. Um, you could be creating problems that you don't want to deal with though. And there's not a lot of great reasons that I know of to be doing it anyways. Excellent. Thank you, guys. Um, we got another writing question, and it just simply stated, pot up or slab up? So I'm thinking that they want to know, what are your thoughts, considerations, what considerations to keep in mind when going for pot versus slabs, especially when using the Aurora system? Any difference? So if we're talking about round pots, um, obviously the maintenance requirements for round pots or hard pots of any type, uh, you know, I've seen people run like um, the rock wool croutons in hard pots, for example. Um, I, I, we're definitely going to be on the slab side or the, um, the plastic prepackaged cocoa. Uh, you're going to reduce your labor quite a bit. You're not going to have a ton of increased costs. You, you know, you might feel like you're throwing away costs if you've already invested into to hard pots. But, uh, you know, if you are using hard pots, you should be scrubbing those things clean between cycles and you know even you know one cycle of, of labor into scrubbing is probably more than what you would be increased in purchasing uh, a pre-packaged media yeah i would say it really uh sounds like you may not have scrubbed enough pots in your day um <laughs> i don't want to be mean but done that too many thousand times i'm over it 
you know, the, the other thing to consider is, um, you know, your, your own personal preferences, I guess. Do you feel like you're saving the world shipping coconut husk over from Asia with diesel across the ocean or uh, melting rocks and spinning them into cotton candy? You know, what bo- both are energy intensive, both have their own environmental negative consequences. So kind of comes down to that. And at the end of the day, the biggest factor is how reliable is your irrigation system in your facility? If you frequently have problems with reliability, you might want to stick with cocoa just because that's a little more forgiving. If you have an over drying event, we can actually hydrate it back up. If your system is very unreliable and you want to go with rock wool and then suddenly you start missing that ever important P2 sometimes where you, you know, we're bringing it back up enough not to over dry, then we'll end up in a situation where we're compromising our water content in the media and constantly battling that the rest of the run while we're just trying to keep enough water in there between waterings to keep the plant alive. Another advantage of soft-sided media is the installation of your terrace falls. Uh, Round hard pots, we absolutely recommend that you cut a rectangle out the size of a terrace falls so that those prongs can be fully flushed in the media. If you're using a soft-sided, like a one-gallon unhydrated cocoa that you ended up hydrating up, Usually you can just go right to the plastic and it'll be a really good connection to the substrate. Rockwell slabs, uh, same thing, where that sensor is going to sit nice and flush and you're going to get consistent data from substrate to substrate. Yeah, and there's, you know, another thing to remember too when it comes to prepackaged cocoa pots, there is a variety of packaging options out there. Some companies use a biodegradable sheet plastic that looks more familiar, like it isn't biodegradable, but it's familiar looking. Um, other companies use, you know, more like a landscape fabric look. Some use what looks like a very thin, almost, uh, you know, medical grade gauze type look. A lot of them actually do have biodegradable options. So, you know, don't always think that because you're going with this prepackaged option, you're necessarily going with the most wasteful or environmentally harmful option, especially when it comes to the cocoa. Excellent. Thank you for that. Okay. I have another question from James One Scorpio. Um, so they wrote flowering with single fan leaves. Is that a late flower issue? That's the description of what he's got going on over there. And then he wrote bad reveg and height restrictions. Bad reveg. I think he nailed it right there. Uh, that number one would be why did you reveg? Because that's the exact reason you don't. It's the developmental and hormonal problem that develops in the plant when we disrupt that determinant lifestyle we kicked it off on. So if you were to reveg a plant, the best thing you could maybe do with it is keep trying to reveg it for a few months and then get to the point where it has no pre-flowers and cut some moms off of it. Um, generally speaking, if you use that word, you should have thrown the plant away. I know why someone might reveg is because they had a loss of a strain they wanted to keep from their strain bank. There you um, go. Keep, keep it in veg is, you know, two, three months and then take some cuts and turn it into moms. It Unfortunately, if you do hit that situation where you've got a, a semi-flowered plant that you're trying to bring back into veg, um, typically it takes a little while to get out of that. You know, I've seen like a whole mom room where someone flipped the light switch off when they're spraying and that whole mom room pre-flowered in a week. Okay guess what? It, no matter what you do, it's about two months of not very good cuts coming out of there just because it takes that long for those plants to really go back to a full veg cycle. And even then 
if you were taking cuts off, you're still going to see that weird single leaf formation and stuff until you actually get new growth, new meristems coming out with that corrected hormonal balance. So not, not trying to bash you or anything, but uh, if that's generally what that single leaflet formation has to do with is revegging. And you can kind of see it in certain strains that tend to stretch a long time. You know, we always go back to like talking about the diesels and running those generatively all the way through. If you go to bulk a strain like that, you know, halfway through bud set, when that's happening later than other strains, um, we'll see some of that kind of same, same formation. Once we push the plant to start flowering, it's been flowering, and then we give it too strong of veg cues, or we have a few days we accidentally gave it, you know, didn't pull the tarps. We'll see that elongation, single leaves, classic reveg traits. Um, yeah, I, I wish there was a solution other than saying to be patient. Uh, the other solution might be to go put it in a tissue culture lab and manipulate it hormonally there, but that's not going to be any quicker than uh, just being patient. Be patient, the mantra of the grower. <laughs> okay, I have one more question here from our Instagram community. Anybody who has any questions for us here on the live broadcast, I think we have time for one more, but um, this person actually came through with a troubleshooting issue with their new solis. Um, so I was just thinking, maybe maybe we can get an overview of some things that people need to know when they're setting up their solace. How about that? To prevent inaccurate readings. Uh, Go yeah. for it. <laughs> well, there's a few things you can do. You know, number one, um, if we're talking about hand-filled pots, for instance, really, really nailing down your SOP and finding ways that you make sure you're having consistent packing throughout that pot. Um, that's a huge challenge right off the bat. Um, I know we all try to do that as consistently as possible, but now that you have equipment, you know, pay attention to when you're stabbing, say those soft pots you hand packed. And if you're hitting a soft spot, maybe move it to a firmer spot and make sure that you're stabbing again, apples to apples, not apples to oranges. When we're trying to make this comparison in terms of medium density. And then, you know, always use your alignment tool, number one. And then also remember, you know, the way we, we get this volumetric water content reading is based on, you know, a calibrated conductivity, electroconductivity reading across that probe. So if we're looking at media inconsistencies, you know, that's going to produce a huge problem. If we've got an inch of one of those probes that's in a dry pocket, that's going to throw down our average across the whole sensor. And then also, you know, when you go to test a media, um, where, where is your information coming from on what its actual water capacity should be or its volumetric water content? Personally, I find we're dealing, you know, no matter what media we're growing, we're dealing with a, a high volume product that has to be manufactured cheaply. So we should always expect to see a variation, whether it's cocoa, rock wool, peat moss, <laughs> and mixed organic dirts, they're all going to have a little bit of variation. So we want to test as much as we can and then look at like, okay, if I have a bench that's 200 square feet, I've got two sensors on it. There's a hundred plants. I'm monitoring two of them. Best case scenario, both of those plants sit in the middle of the other 49 plants around them. And if those are reading 50%, I've got 24 plants that are reading 48% and 25 plants that are reading, uh, you know, 53% let's say. So at the end of the day, we are also playing a game of averages. So you should expect to see a little bit of variation from pot to pot. And also, you know, your plants are different sized. And that's why, like, you know, if we went back to uh, like trying to use some load cells or scales to figure this out, 
I could go weigh that potted plant every day and calculate, you know, by weight in grams, how much water in milliliters evaporated or transpired out of that pot. But unless I have an equation to infer how much biomass I packed on in that time in terms of grams, that reading is not accurate. You know, if we used 10 grams more water tomorrow than we did today, but the plant grew two inches, I don't know how many grams it actually packed on. Is that reading accurate? So what we want to look at is like the best approximation we have. And then again, remember that we're inside of a range. You know, two plants can look exactly the same and still read, you know, several percentages apart throughout their entire life cycle and have a really similar yield as well. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for that excellent overview. That is it for the questions. Instagram, thank you so much for submitting so many great questions. And of course, to our live attendees, thank you for posting your questions in the chat and letting, allowing us to talk about your experience today. Seth, good to see you in the studio. Jason, good to see you via satellite from an undisclosed location. I think he's in Washington State. He's not that far away. Um, but looking forward to um, continuing the conversation next week, guys. So thank you so much. Um, thank for everybody joining us uh, for Arroyo Office Hours Live this week. If you have any questions about Arroyo and how it can be used to use, uh, improve your cultivation production process or any other topic you'd like covered during one of our broadcasts, please post it in the chat. Shoot us an email at support.arroyo.metergroup.com or send us a DM over Instagram. We definitely want to hear from you. We record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's discussion, and it'll also live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please do share with your network and spread the word. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Keisha. Thanks for showing Thanks, up, everyone. Bye. See you. Turtle Farms, thanks for coming. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.